Hello Indian world listeners, I hope you enjoyed Bhangat. And as a special surprise, I have got a bonus episode for you which discusses the themes of uh, Bhangat and the horror tradition that it is based upon. So the king in yellow mythos um, it was origin it is based on um the works of Robert W Chambers who wrote a book of short stories first published in 1895 entitled The King in Yellow. Um and since then several horror authors over the years have uh, written in the theme uh, most famously including H.P. Lovecraft uh, who was one of the most famous early 20th century horror writers and you can see the influence of uh, the king in yellow mythos in even recent popular culture um true detectives uh, the the tv show's first season uh, featured some of the elements from the story now um when i was writing this um obviously one of the big intentions that i had was uh, you know uh, to produce a body of work in indian horror fiction that ties in with some of the great traditions in international horror uh, king in yellow mythos happens to be one of them lovecraftians uh, another mckinian stories stories of algernon and blackwood they're all different traditions that i will be exploring through the one shots on indian noir uh, but i always had the intention that you know um, this is not just about me contributing uh, to this body of uh, literature it's also about encouraging other people to write in these um, traditions um and introducing um readers of uh, horror fiction to some of these traditions if they are not aware of it uh through uh, the, uh, the 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 work itself uh, but also through bonus episodes where i might get uh, people who are quite knowledgeable in the matter to discuss um some of the themes and elements that that goes into those uh, these these type of tor- stories um so um today we have uh, mike davis the editor of the lovecraft ezine uh who is a legend in the international horror scene and um uh he's joined by Pete Rolick who is also a horror writer who has written in the Lovecraftian um uh, tradition uh, these two gentlemen are you know not only absolute legends they were also very close with um Joseph Pulver one of the uh, greatest anthologists of king in yellow stories who has sadly passed away um so i asked uh, them to uh, make a special recording for indian noir listeners discussing um the king in yellow mythos the work of uh mr pulver um and uh to uh, examine some of the themes that uh come out of the king in yellow stories um so without uh, any more disruptions let's go ahead and listen to the the conversation um Thank you once again for your support for uh, horror stories on Indian Noir. You can always link up with me at Indian Noir on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you uh, your reactions regarding Pangad, this special bonus episode and uh, uh, also really enjoy uh, the following hour and a half long conversation where uh, two absolute legends and experts in the field um examine the mythos in detail. um this is after all cargoza my name is mike davis i'm with the lovecraft ezine um i'm here with pete rollick uh a lovecraftian and 
pulp fiction author who's written oh, i don't know thousands of stories pete no 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 hundreds hundreds maybe, maybe. Pete a has couple novels a lot of, and of stories maybe a hundred stories you uh you've got a trilogy out there let's just mention that real quick before we move on to these to why we're talking um and then you have other books as well of course Right. So there's the, the trilogy you're talking about is uh, Reanimators, The Weird Company, and Reanimatrix. But the Peasley papers also tie into that. Mm. And then the next book, which I keep saying is finished, but I keep deciding to add to it, <laughs> um, The Eldritch Equations is almost done. Well, you know, um, anyone who is is interested in the king of yellow the king in yellow mythos for lack of a better phrase is probably interested in the lovecraftian or cosmic horror uh lovecraftian mythos and cosmic horror themes and or if vice versa. yeah and if you're not you'll you should be because you'll you'll enjoy it um for those who don't know me who are listening um I have patrons listening live, but for those who are listening to the to the uh, podcast in India, uh, again, my name is Mike Davis. I do several things, but one of them is a podcast that's live every Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern USA time, uh, which is probably pretty late for for you folks in India. But the good news is it's also recorded. It's on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for Lovecraft Easing. You'll find it. And if you're one of those folks who would like to listen on the go, it is turn a few days later after after Sunday. Later on in the week, I turned it into a uh, just a regular audio podcast. So it'll be on iTunes, Spotify, different places like that. So, so uh, you know, if you go to lovecrafteasing.com and go to the top left and click on podcast, really, it, it kind of explains everything, gives you a list of upcoming guests, and uh, also a list, hyperlinked list of uh, the usual panelists. So for tonight, this is, uh, this is just Pete Rollick and I. It was, uh, now speaking to the gentleman who asked me to do this, uh, you asked me to answer these questions and send you an MP3 pot, uh, file. I hope you don't mind. I thought it would actually be better, and I think perhaps your uh, your 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 listeners will enjoy it more if it's more of a conversation and less of a lecture from Mike Davis. So, because uh, you know, I know a lot. Pete knows more. He's uh, he's got a mind like a steel trap, and all all these facts. They stay in there, so Yikes. yeah, no pressure there. No, 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 no pressure at all. Also, both of us are were, in a way, still are, I suppose, very good friends with a writer by the name of Joseph S. Pulver Jr. Uh, senior, senior. I, I beg your pardon, senior. Yeah, Joseph S. Pulver Senior. Um, us to us known as Joe Pulver uh his friends and joe just was really really into robert w chambers really into king and yellow stories and themes he edited several anthologies with this theme if if you go to amazon 
and type in Joseph S. Pulver Sr. or just Joseph Pulver, you know, you'll come across him. There's quite a few. He's a, he was a, a very good writer and a very good editor. And this, he was interested in Lovecraftian themes as, as, as Pete and I are, but he, he was, he was very interested in King and Yellow themes. And in a perfect world, he would be with Pete and I in this conversation, but we will try to do him justice. And we do miss him very, very much, very much. So um, this request came from, uh, I, I don't know this gentleman, but uh, from the Indian Noir podcast. Excuse me. Uh, and it looks like you got quite a few followers, um, sir, in India and probably elsewhere. Uh, India's number one story, storytelling podcast. I'm reading from your, your Twitter page. Uh, Commonwealth short story winner, acclaimed spoke word artist, creator of original shows for Audible. So uh, you said you were honored to have me do this. I'm honored that you asked. So uh, uh, Pete and I appreciate it. So you have some questions for me. Um, and good evening to my patrons who are, who are watching live. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to start off with asking Pete these questions, and then I'm going to throw in my thoughts as well. So the first question is this. What are your thoughts on why the King in Yellow mythos still fascinates modern horror writers? So, so Pete, why don't you take that? So when I look back on, on horror writing in general, I see what... I feel is like the start is it, you know, if you look at horror and its beginnings, it's, it's pretty much rooted in the supernatural. Mm. And for Western literature, that, it, that means it's rooted in uh, mostly Judeo Christian Islamic her heritage, ghosts, uh, angels, demons, devils, that sort of thing. Good versus evil. In, in an occult setting, yes. In, in a mystic setting, so to speak. Right. It's not until the early 1800s that we get Mary Shelley and the first inkling of what becomes scientific horror, where we have man versus science. Um, dominant, you know, dominant examples of this would be, you know, Frankenstein. The Invisible Man, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And if you look at horror literature today, those are the two primary themes that we see fighting back and forth for dominance in the horror genre. Now, there are some others. There's sort of psychological horror, man versus man. Right. And this goes, this will lead you into the slasher flick as well. There's also man versus nature horror stories. I was about to bring that up, but then I didn't because I thought, in a way, that is man versus science. It is, but you've also got sort of man versus nature, and like for for example, Jaws. Jaws yeah. is yeah. is man versus an animal. There's also some great stories about man versus climate, and you know, uh, man versus uh, meteorological events, those sorts of things. Right. Um, but hidden here sort of like this, this other, other 
trend that is characterized by some really great stories is sort of horror derived from the arts. And the greatest example of this is probably the picture of Dorian Gray. Mm, yes. Okay. H.P. Lovecraft's The Music of Eric Zahn falls into this category. Quite possibly one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. Right. And, and what you have here is this sort of idea that the creation of art, the enjoyment of art, the study of art, whether that's music or writing or painting, is fundamentally something that can lead to horror. And I think Robert W. Chambers really taps into this with the four stories that make up the original parts of the King and Yellow stories. I've never um, thought about it in that sense, Pete, that you begin with man versus art in a, in a horror setting. And yeah, then, and it, is it, and, it, and sometimes it's not even man versus art. It's just man and an art. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at, say, uh, Dorian Gray, there's no devil that a deal is made with. There's no this, that, or the other thing. There's no angelic intervention. There's no science. It's never explained how it happens. It just happens. And likewise with the music of Eric Zahn, there's, you know, this viola player is suddenly tapping into something extra dimensional. There's no explanation. It's just the way it is. And with the King and Yellow stories, here you have a play. The reading of which drives you insane. As our writer friend, Scott Thomas, who anyone listening, if you've not, not read him, you really should maybe start with uh, the Sea of Ash or start with um, Over the Darkening Fields. But I bring him up because he's fond of saying, explain nothing, you know. Right. So, uh, so which, it, which, like you said, uh, Eric Zahn doesn't explain why this is doesn't happening. Explain Dorian Gray doesn't explain why this is happening. It just is. Right. And we only ever get snippets of the King in Yellow. Hmm. that suggests greater things are going on. Carcosa, the king in yellow himself, so forth. Right. But, but we never get to see much of it at all. Right. He's off stage. And so, so why are, why are we attracted to that? First of all, art, you know, writers are artists. And that kind of idea is kind of, kind of interesting to play with that you could write something or perform something or sing something or, or compose something that would have such an impression on your audience that they would go insane. How Thomas, could you not? Thomas Legat, yeah. How, can you not? Thomas how could you Ligatti's, not want to play with that idea? Yeah. In the nonfiction realm, how different do you feel 
not you, but a person, how does, how different does one feel after reading the conspiracy against the human race? Right. Right. By Thomas Ligotti. Wow. Um, there at the turn of the century, there was a play performed in, in Paris called Ubu Roy. And the audience responded by rioting and destroying the theater. This was a real story. I thought this, this was, was a real story. Wow. It was a real play. And it was it really occurred. What was the play about? Um it's a it's a nonsense play. It's it's um avant-garde and nonsensical. It it's a it's a piece of absurdist literature. And pokes holes and mocks a bunch of French society and French education systems and things like that. Mm, And if it weren't that it was performed first after Chambers' book was published, it would be an interesting thing to cite as an example of what Chambers is talking about. Um. So, so we've, we've been talking a bit about why this fascinates writers, but let me, let's flip it a little bit. Why does this uh, mythos, this, these, why do these themes fascinate readers still today? So if you look at the Lovecraftian mythos and cosmic horror, mm-hmm. it's sort of almost a sense of cosmic dread. Hmm. and you are very, very small in the face of the universe which is very, very large. The Chambers mythology, the King in Yellow, it's a little bit more personal than that. It carries with it this sense of personal dread and ennui to the point of paranoia. I mean, the the repairer of reputations is such a great story because the narrator is totally unreliable and seems to be insane. But everything he says and does turns out to be true. Right. But then at the end, you're left wondering, was any of this story true or was any of it, was it all just made up? And you can try and parse that out all you want, but ultimately you end up with this feeling that maybe he wasn't as insane as he was made out to be. And Which uh, Philip K. Dick plays with that. Yeah, absolutely. In in different ways. Right. And and, yeah. And I'm surprised that Dick never wrote any King and Yellow stories because it just seems right up his alley. If you read uh, The Shifting Realities of Philip K. Dick, and if you read, um, I just bought it a little bit ago and I don't see it up here where it belongs, but it's. it's like his complete 
philosophy. It's man, the thing is huge. Yeah. I'll get the name for you later, but, uh, you know, like in the shifting realities of F Philip K. Dick, you know, he's, he's like talking about, um, schizophrenics and, and maybe they're seeing a different reality that we can't see. Right. So is this unreliable narrator, is he really so unreliable? Or is he right. just describing what he sees? And if he is describing what he sees, is what he sees real or does it exist only in his mind? Yes. And the question and arises. Really also, fun things to think about. One of the one of the th themes that you see to play with a lot is self-imposed amnesia. Mm. Where the main character has learned something that he decides to hide from himself. And then somehow or another has to relearn that fact and break his self-imposed amnesia to survive. Wasn't there a Heinlein short story, uh, the title escapes me, about a god who, what, I don't believe the amnesia was self-imposed. But... Uh, don't remember one by Heinlein. Yeah, but but he was he was living out a regular life, you know, with a wife and and all that. And uh, I, I'll look it up while you while you talk. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a Star Trek episode like that. Which one? Um, I believe it's a Star Trek Next Generation episode where there's a planet where it's been totally destroyed except for a small patch. And there's a farmhouse and a man and a woman there. And oh, right. uh, they, he, the, they just keep telling them to leave. And ultimately, they discover that the guy is a godlike entity and, and fallen in love with the woman. And she died. And he wiped out the entire planet in response. Uh, here it is. It's called They by Robert Heinlein. Okay. Does that ring a bell? Here's, no. the, here's the summary. Well, I think you'd like it. Um, the story concerns an unnamed man who is confined to a mental institution. I mean, here we are at Shades of Lovecraft, Philip K. Dick, and Chambers, right? Right, right there. Confined to a mental institution because he is suffering from the delusion that he is one of the few real entities in the universe. And that the other real entities have created the rest of the universe in a conspiracy to deceive him. He spends much of the story engaged in verbal sparring with the psychiatrist who is caring for him and in pondering his predicament, trying to figure out a way to prove that his belief is true. I'll stop there. But a variation on what you were talking about with Dick, the, the self-imposed um, amnesia. Right, right. So, yeah, it's a fascinating short story for anyone who hasn't read it. It's it's, it's called They by Robert Heinlein. Okay. So, yeah, so we uh, writers would love to play with the idea that your fiction can seriously impact your audience. And there's nothing that, that I could think of there's so many ways to play with that. I tried uh, in my my uh, anthology, um, the chromatic court, to get people to think about how art and horror might mix, and you know, pick an art form 
and then write a horror story about it. And I had hoped that somebody would do like cooking or weaving, <laughs> um, but nobody did. And so now I've been like, I got those ideas on the back burner. Well, there, there are variations on this theme in some books and movies. Uh, we talked about this in June or July on a Patreon podcast. I did pull up my notes. I won't go over it now, but they're out there and I'll go over it before we end this tonight. Okay. Um, here, so here's question two. Uh, two. Okay. If you're done with one. Yeah, I'm done with one. Okay. Question two. What do you think are some of the themes in the Kingdom of Yellow? mythos that personally resonate with you so i guess this question applies to you and it applies to me so why don't yeah. you go first and then i'll follow so yeah that sense of dread that 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 ennui the paranoia that might be justified um these are also the you know the turn of the century for some reason or other the the king of yellow stories are are turn of the century stories they're at the beginning of the the at the end of the uh 19th century right and always for some reason there's a panic at the end of centuries yeah and you know i, I think these fit that that mold and you know for someone who's now lived through the panic that led up to the 21st century and the panic that's at the beginning of the 21st century. It's a, a very interesting um, genre to play in. Um, there's also this whole idea that the yellow of the King in yellow represents corruption and pestilence and plague. Um, all of which are themes that are just ripe right now. <laughs> You mentioned the turn the end of the last century. Well, we were both there. People people make light of it now. It's a big joke. But one of the things was Y2K, and yeah, we seriously thought it might be a huge huge problem. Yeah, we you know many people seriously thought that when the struck clock struck midnight that night that everything goes off. You know. Right. Um, in, and, and those fears, I think, served to prevent it happening. Um, yep. But no, I knew people. I'm no expert, but sorry. You know, I, I know people that stockpiled food and weapons. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you're right. In end of the century, there's always something. And, then, you know, people, they kind of forget it later, but it was there. Right. You know, it, it wasn't a joke at the time. Right. People were scared. There were books on how to live past Y two K. You know, yep. surviving in the year two thousand. You know, yep. and then there were there was the oh we were wrong. But now we have to worry about the the end of the we we had to worry about twenty twelve. Right. Strieber actually wrote Whitley Strieber actually wrote a twenty twelve book. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about that the other night. I'm like, how, how does this guy even live this down in his mind? I mean, you know, <laughs> took the money and run, I suppose. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, what are your 
Go ahead. What are your uh, themes that you like to look at and play with in that? Well, I come from more of a Philip K. Dickian standpoint when the king and yellow themes resonate with me. What is real? Um, is there something that can drive you insane? Is there something that can show you the real truth behind reality? What, no matter how true, horrible that truth may be. And I realize we're, we're branching into Lovecraftian themes here. And if Joe was here, he'd be like, well, these two are separate things, but they do merge at some points. I'm not an expert like Joe and I'm not an expert like you, but I've been reading it a while and, and they merge a bit in that respect. That's how it grabs me. Right. Um, and so we I'm, should explain that to people that, so to be clear, the King and Yellow mythos, the Robert W. Chambers mythos, were founded long before Lovecraft wrote any of his stories. Right. And later, he read them and incorporated some of the terms into uh, his story, Whisper in Darkness. And then um, between Derelith and Carter and a few other people, uh, the King and Yellow mythos got absorbed into the Cthulhu mythos. Joe was vehemently opposed to this. Vehemently. He really was a, a King and Yellow mythos is an independent thing. He did, he did not like the overlap. Now, that's not to say he wouldn't write a story about it. Yeah. If it for what it's worth. I personally do agree with Joe, but I also do think there is some overlap. Yeah. You know? Yep. Uh, well, so the, the problem is that, you know, the, the, you know, Lovecraft steals from chambers and incorporates it into his mythos, but chambers borrowed from beers, Carcosa, Halley, all, all, a lot of the terms that he uses to develop his uh, his uh, King and Yellow mythos, he borrowed from Ambrose Bierce. So, standing on the shoulders, on the shoulders, on the shoulders. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you know, Joe has a good point, but you know, the tradition is to to um, steal, beg, borrow, and steal. <laughs> And make it your own in some way. And make it your own. Absolutely. Now, what, what, so the question is, what are the themes in the King and Yellow Mythos that personally resonate with you? Okay. Speaking personally for me, I, I think there's something really captivating about, you, you know, reading a story or watching a story, AKA movie or TV series that there's some mysterious book or movie or whatever and if you if you find it you're gonna come across some type of elemental truth you know if not the truth beyond reality something really elemental and in most cases probably not very pleasant but you're you're compelled to search on anyway so now here's where I will throw out a few things and those listening now or later, you know, 
grab your pen if you you know if 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 you haven't watched these or read these and Pete you can throw things out too but the list that I made from our conversation with you and me and Rick and I forget who else I think Matt was there too uh he, here's a great example John Carpenter's cigarette burns I knew you were going to go there yeah yeah that's the easy one yeah but I'm not wrong no and, you're not and it's really great yeah it really is great. And if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. Uh, I'm going to say something and then I want your comment. Some of the Ring movies. One and two, maybe. Um, all right. So I have six Ring movies in my cabinet. I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 I think the Ring series is really, really good. The American versions are probably the worst versions that, that I own. You know, I've been looking for something. It's easy to find something to watch, okay, in this in these yep. this day age. But I've been looking for something to watch. You know what right, I mean? So, so yeah. I'll, I'll check out the foreign. It's from Japan, right? Well, uh, Shutter has one, two, and zero available right now. Is do you watch zero first? No, you watch Zero Last. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So there's that. Uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, which I thought started off great, but I didn't it's, it's really enjoy it. It's an interesting film. Yeah. yeah. It's um, on Netflix, I believe, with Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo. Yes. Um, yep. Yeah. And also, once again, about art. Right. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm not going to list all these, but I will go with some highlights. Barbarian Sound Studio. Barbarian Sound Studio is an interesting film. I think that you need to have a background in giallo or, or you know, Italian horror films to understand it. But yes. Now let's let's move on to books for a second, unless you've got a couple movies you want to throw you know, out. Pete. One movie I'm going to throw in there, Mr. Jones. You know, I still have not seen that. So, a lot of people don't like it because it's a little low budget, but I think it's a magnificent production. Okay. All right. So, so far, I need to watch the uh, Japanese Ring movies and Mr. Jones. Yeah. All right. Moving on to books and short stories. Excuse me. Again, I'm not going to go over this entire list. Uh, but I think one of the best examples out there, and, and literally, I don't say this lightly, one of the creepiest slash scariest short stories I have ever read is a short story by Michael Menace called Snuff Movie. Okay. Um, have you read it yet, Pete? Yeah, a, a while ago, yes. Yeah, I, I thought you did. And for patrons who happen to be watching and listening you may remember, or if you're a new Patreon, maybe you don't know, and just 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 go back and search. But uh, I paid someone to do a great reading of of snuff film with, of course, the author's permission and payment. Uh, John, uh, not John Paget, it was uh, Lehman Kessler who who read it. So if you'd like to listen to an audio version and you're a patron, you can certainly do that. Um, but it is just a very very creepy story and it's about this 
guy who's he's got a girlfriend and he's friends with his he, the guy is friends with another guy who's just sort of out there he's always looking for uh torture porn but the real thing you know and he's always you know uh very disdainful of of any any film that he watches that purports to be real and then he sees that it obviously isn't and i'll pretty much leave it there but it's very well done uh more people should know the name michael menace he's very very unknown and underrated and he's written a lot of great stuff and i think that's right at the top so and that is available on kindle if you're if you're not a patron of lovecraft easy he started out as an illustrator oh did he yeah cover artist yeah um if you look this up on kindle before i forget to say uh don't look under snuff film because that's a short story in one of his collections just 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 go to amazon and type in michael menace and it's in one of his collections, and um, it should be easy to find with just a tiny bit of research. So anyway, go on, Pete. Um, the the novel I would recommend is by Brian Hauser, Memento yes. Mori. Which you recommended to me, and I was just really glad that you did. I mean, it's it's a rabbit hole of of craziness. If you've not watched or listened to the Lovecraft Easing um, uh, podcast, regular podcast, you know, for everyone, not just patrons, it's available to watch uh, on YouTube at Love, Lovecraft Easing. Uh, you can also go to iTunes, Spotify, whatever, uh, Google Lovecraft Easing podcast and Brian Hauser, H A U S E R, and you can listen to that interview. But it was entirely Pete that turned me on to this. And as I was reading, I'm like, Pete, geez, we got to get this guy on the, uh, on, yep. on, the, on the podcast. And we did. It was a great talk. Yeah. But yeah. you want to say a little bit more about that book? Because I think more so, people need to read it. Yeah, I think Memento Mori is, it's sort of, it's, it's, this guy starts out look, reviewing old fanzines, old um, riot fanzines. That you would you would produce by mimeograph about lost films or old films, and then he finds some that mention a film that he really interested in, and it leads him down to finding you know journal articles and the journals of a of a radical filmmaker, and ultimately leads to the discovery of the film. And, but nothing, nothing ever ends well for anybody here. No, no, it is a horror story. So, yeah. Well, you know, the question is, and I'm going to get back to more, some, some more books in a second. The question is, themes in the King and Yellow Mythos that personally resonate with you. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hone in on the personally for just one moment. Uh, as Pete knows, as a lot of my friends know, uh, without boring them with the uh, ugly, ugly facts, I grew up in a cult. And the, the reason why I bring this up right now is not for anyone to feel sorry for me, but when you grow up in something, no matter how weird it is, to you, it's normal. 
It's, right. it's the absolute truth. You don't believe something in your little mind. You know something because that's it. You know it. Okay. Maybe you're, you're knowing something that objectively isn't true, right? That's not what I'm talking about. But in your mind, you know it. You don't just have some kind of faith or strong belief. And it's very comforting to have the answers. It's less comforting to learn a scientific mindset, learn how to uh, use Carl Sagan's baloney detector, uh, you know, read books like The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan and learn that there's so much that we don't know. And, you know, by the way, you didn't have the answers. And so I'm not wanting to get back to that kind of mindset, obviously, but, but the themes fascinate me. You know, when you, when you find the theme in a story where, okay, if you watch this particular movie, if you find this particular book or this or that, you're going to uncover the reality of the universe or the reality behind reality. Uh, here's a good example. If you haven't watched the 13th floor, that's a perfect example. Somebody wrote, writes a note to somebody else at the beginning of this film. And that note in this movie is our stand-in for the ultimate answer to reality for this person. Wouldn't you agree, Pete? Yeah. And yeah. I don't, if you've not watched the 13th floor, you really should not read anything about it or watch the trailers, okay? I know I say this a lot, but you really shouldn't. It's going to ruin the experience for you. Um, but this note that the guy writes that that's, that's the ultimate answer to his reality. Yeah. You know, so you when, know he, when he reads that note yeah, and confirms what's in that note. So those are the kind of things I'm talking about, you know, so if you, if you're into the King and Yellow mythos themes, then it, it, it appears to me personally, I, as a person, I'm honing in on that word personally again it, it seems to me that they're not the same thing but they go arm in arm with philip k dick and they go arm in arm in some ways with cosmic horror right so the, i i see those three things as as varying versions of the same thing in some ways so um when you were talking there i was flashing on the movie with harrison ford and tommy lee jones the fugitive okay where Harrison Ford escapes and he's running through the tunnel in the Hoover Dam. Right. He's right there on the edge, going to go over. And he turns around and Tommy Lee Jones is standing there and he says, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. Right. Tommy Lee Jones is not interested in the truth. No. No, he's he's not the guy that's interested that would that would search after the hidden notebook with the secrets right. to the universe or whatever. Right. But right after that, Harrison Ford jumps because he is interested in the truth. He's heavily vested in the in, in the truth. He needs to know whether it kills him or not. Uh, yeah, there's a phone call later where Harrison Ford tracks down the, the killer. The, the one armed man. The one armed man. He's in his house and he calls Tommy Lee Jones, the guy who's searching for him. He calls him and he says, 
you know, such and such, I forget exactly what he says. And Tommy Lee Jones says something to the effect of, I'm not trying to solve a puzzle here. And Harrison Ford says, well, I am trying to solve a puzzle and I just found a really big piece. And he puts the phone down on the desk. He doesn't right. hang up because he wants the call traced. Right. And right. it's at that point, that's a critical point of the movie where Tommy Lee Jones starts to care about the truth. Right. And, he's, and he's dragged into Harrison Ford's delusion or his reality. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that, that's a great example, Pete, because that, that's not, that, that's not a movie that is, uh, um supernatural in any way but yet still a great example right yeah that's good okay question three uh and here's the question the late joe pulver is perhaps one of the best known editors in the field who dedicated his life to editing and writing king and yellow mythos tales and i know you were close friends with him i was wondering if you could please talk a bit about his contributions to enhance excuse me, to enhancing the legacy of Chambers' original tale. I'll let Pete take most of this because uh, this applies to both of us. We were both very good friends with Joe, both of us, not just me. And um, Pete can speak to this better than me, but I will say that the first thing that I think of when I hear, hear a question like this is that picture of Joe at Robert W. Chambers' grave. Mm-hmm. This all was so important to him. Yeah. You know? And I don't know what originally triggered Joe into, oh, yeah, King and Yellow Mythos, because his first book was a Lovecraftian procedural thriller. Yeah. Uh, but after that, he seems to veer into King and Yellow themes quite heavily. So, Pete, you want to take this? Uh, again, the question is. Talk a bit about his contributions to enhancing the legacy of Chambers' original tale. So when Joe, Joe used to rag on me all the time, he used to call me a storyteller. And that I, no matter what I was doing, whether even just like now, I would tell a story. That was my goal. My goal was always to tell a story. You, yeah, that's exactly right. You are a storyteller. You mean you'd write and without getting paid, you'd write if there was no such thing as payment for writing. Yeah, and there isn't. <laughs> yeah, for most of us, there's not. <laughs> now, but in my mind, Joe was a poet. He understood how and studied and tried to understand how language moved on a page. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he talked about the toolbox and uh, that writers have, and he was constantly trying to expand his toolbox. And in my mind, Joe was not only a poet, but he was a beat poet, mm. was bohemian, avant-garde. He wanted to not just understand the poetry that we had, but then rip that poetry apart, break it down and rebuild it into something that was completely different. And that might piss you off a little bit. 
there's yeah. a there's a kind of a mediocre TV show, even though I personally enjoy it. I think most people would say it was mediocre. Uh, called Crossing Jordan started. I think the first episodes were in like the year two thousand one or something, and it's about a uh, a morgue person who is really kind of a detective at heart, and she right. tries to find the truth behind every dead body that comes her way. She cares, right? Uh, in the very first episode, her boss, who is really at that point in his life, kind of disgruntled is made to give a speech to college students about why they might consider working in a mortuary and he's very nervous about it and he, and he starts to talk with his notes and then he's like basically this mental screw it shows the notes aside and said you don't want to do what i do you know blah blah, blah. and he goes you know do this do that he goes be a poet and it, i will never forget he goes can you imagine the courage that it takes to be a poet? And that line always makes me think of Joe. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, go on, Pete. Yeah, you know, Joe was a poet. He was probably our best example. You know, he always talked about Anne K. Schwader as one of our best representative poets. I think Joe was a was there as well. Um, he just wrote more prose poetry than poetry. Um, you know, we can look at, say, Willem, and Willem Pugmire was steeped in classic poetry and classic prose. Joe was studying Ginsburg and E.E. E. Cummings in um all the other beats and trying to figure out what made them work and how he could use that in his own uh fiction and and his own work i mean the orphan palace is just a magnificent piece of it's a beat novel and if you read it, you can see that. And it, it has a fluidity, a fluidity to it that you only get from poetry. And it even went beyond, the poetry went beyond the words. It was even with Joe. How does it look on the page? Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's, yeah, I got in trouble putting some of his books on Kindle because it just didn't work out the same. Right. He right. wanted this. I want a white space here and this is why I want it. Right. You know, even the printed page was another way for him to be a poet. Right. The shape of the text was important to him. Yeah. Um, and I, I think in, in one point we, he and I argued about what font we should be using. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, by the way, uh, Joe Pulver's wife is watching this live, um, and I, I hope this is nice to hear for all of the listeners of the Indian Noir podcast as well. But uh, she says, you guys are making me tear up in all the good ways. Please, and please is in caps, Pete. Please thank Pete for the poet not, nod and you for bringing it up. 
So thought you'd like to hear that. Yeah, well, now that just derailed our conversation. <laughs> yeah. in, in a good way. In a good way, but yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to say something about the previous question before I forget, and then I want to stay on this question for just a minute. When you ask a question like this, I think it, at, at first, even though I had these questions ahead of time, at first I'm like, oh, I don't know why these themes resonate with me. Hell if I know. But, you know, you talk about it, you give us some thought, and then you talk about it with, with, like, with like you, Pete. And I remember now so many, many times as a young adult, I would spend, you know, five, six years out of getting out of that cold. I would spend entire days, and I don't exaggerate, in libraries. Mm -hmm. And in, in especially, of course, the nonfiction sections. And I thought, there's got to be an answer somewhere. I just, I, I just have to find it. You know, and I think that that's that that's part of the King and Yellow theme. If you can just find this particular book, if you can just watch this particular movie, you're gonna have the answer. You know what? You may not even like you may not like the answer though. The answer may be horrible, but you'll have the answer. So right. I, I I just remembered that. But let's get back to your you're talking about is Joe's contributions to enhancing the legacy of the Chamber's original tales. Right. So, you know, here he's 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 influenced by Chambers and he's writing King and Yellow fiction. But he's also bringing in all these other influences from poets and musicians and from all over the world. And he's running them through the filter that's his head. And that was and, quite a filter. And it's quite a filter. <laughs> and, you know, every morning I would see Joe post. Cup of tea, smoking what a Steppenwolf smokes. And right there, that's a, that's, that's a reference to Herman Hess. And, you know, not a very popular writer, but something we all had to read at least one story of when we were growing up. But Joe jumped in with both feet, found what he needed out of that and dragged it back with him. And then he, he goes on to use it in these wonderful novels. And, and short stories, mostly short stories, a few novels. But it's no longer just chambers. You can see so much more in that, the work that he's producing. And to the point where, you know, it won't surprise me when somebody down the line comes down and says, I need to do my master's thesis on Joe Pulver yeah. and the influences that he had and how he took all these buried influences from Herman Hess to Ginsburg to Cummings and melded it into chambers and developed 
a greater chain, uh, what do we want to call it? Shamborgian, you know, mythology. Chambers, Chambers was the bedrock, but he didn't stop there. Right. You know, and he, he literally fleshes out some portions of, of that mythology without actually telling us that much more. If anything, he's left us with more questions. But damn if they're not interesting questions. For those of you who are listening to this, um, who, who didn't know Joe or didn't even know Joe through the podcast, uh, for those of you who are listening to this you know, on the what appears to me to be a very excellent Indian noir podcast that I'm going to have to listen to. Um, if, if you start, if you, if you're listening to us and you're starting to get very fascinated by this writer and editor by the name of Joe Pulver, uh, you can discover him through his work. As I previously mentioned, you can also go to YouTube, type in Lovecraft Ezine, and then go back. Uh, we're recording this on January, or excuse me, December 15th. 2020. So go back three or four years. Um, if you go to Lovecraft using uh, on YouTube, you'll see uh, a basic playlist of the Lovecraft using podcast. So click on that, scroll, 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 scroll back three or four years. And just about every uh, video podcast you'll see there, you'll see Joe um, in there with us. He was a panelist. Um, so you can, his work doesn't just live on, he, he doesn't just live on in his work, and, but thankfully he lives on more or less talking to us face to face through that. And I'm so glad that we have that. Um, so uh, if you want to know more about Joe, there's way number two that you can you can get to know Joe more. Did you want to add anything else to that before we move on to the next question, Pete? Yeah. yeah. So for some reason, I'm flashing on Zen, the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by, was it Robert Persig? And not for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's a scene where the kid's motorcycle, his handlebars are loose. And somehow or another, they figure out that they need a flange piece of metal that fits in there and that'll fix everything. And his dad's like, no, we don't need that. He takes a beer can and he takes the metal from the beer can and makes a flange out of it, slides it right in there. That'll work. And this fundamentally freaks out the kid. Because he just can't accept that you can jury rig a fix like that. And his dad's like, why not? It works. And I feel sometimes that Joe was caught between 
these two forces of knowing somewhere out there there's the perfect part that if I just get it and slide it in there, everything will work perfectly. But at the same time, knowing that you don't need that part and you can make it work another way. As a past musician, it makes me think of the mythical perfect chord. You know, yeah. And, you know, and and in many ways, this is also a metaphor for jazz, right? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody thinks that you need to write down all your notes and, you know, perform this piece and you perform it the same way over and over again. And that's what makes it perfect. Mm -mm. But jazz is completely different than that. You have a general outline. You start it like this, you end it like this, but in the middle, you riff. Yeah, big band to some degree also. And yeah. You know, Benny Goodman, and, so forth. And I really feel it that Joe was somewhere in the middle here trying to figure out how to make it all work, knowing that there's perfection out there and striving for it. But at the same time, knowing that there's another way. And, you know, I've seen pages of his where he's written something and edited it and edited it and edited it. And then in the end, he goes back to what he wrote the first time. Mm -hmm. And he was because committed. I remember one day him posting on Facebook. This must be six or seven years ago. And he said something to the effect of... Uh, you know what I really want to do today? I want to sit down, relax, and watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy again. But I'm not going to. I'm going to go into my office and I'm going to write. Right. So, yeah. before I get to the next question, I want to touch on just a few more books for those of you who are just so interested in this theme. I assume you are if you're listening. Uh, experimental film by a writer by the name of Gemma Files, and that is G-E-M-M-A. Last name is Files, just like it sounds, F-I-L-E-S. And again, the name of the book is Experimental Film by Gemma Files. Um, Pete mentioned Memento Mori by Brian Hauser. Uh, I have a list here, and if the podcaster, Indian Noir, podcaster wants me to give him this complete list you know please just email me or let me know but i'm only going to touch on a few more here pete you can throw some out if you want uh let's see here lost signals edited yep. by matt booth uh the third and laurie michelle and lost films edited by matt booth three and laurie michelle those are anthologies um we didn't discuss it when we did this previously talking about King and Yellow themes, but uh, I really loved a book called Night Film. I don't know if you read it, Pete. I'm not familiar with that one. By Marisha Pessel. That's P-E-S-S-L. And it's called Night Film. Um, nonfiction. I have one in the category. 
and I'm sure you can guess what it is. The Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti. Uh, online, Rocco's Basilisk. Am I saying that right, Pete? The most terrifying thought experiment of all oh, time. Yeah. Yes. So uh, check that out at your peril. Rocco's Basilisk, the most terrifying thought experiment of all time. Just Google that. Uh, A Season in Carcosa, edited by Joseph S. Pulver Sr. Yep. The Chromatic Court, edited by Pete Rollick. Um, Grim's Guide Puppets? Yes, absolutely. Uh, oh, oh! I did skip television accidentally. It, I'll just mention two things: Dead Wax. You watched that, didn't you, Pete? I I was the one who recommended it to you. That's right. That's right. That's right. Where is that again? Is that on Amazon? Shutter. 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 Okay. Dead Wax on Shutter. Uh, and then the Doctor Who of all things, Doctor Who episode titled "Sleep No More." So, okay. I think fits. You might, someone else might disagree. Yeah. No, I think it fits. Uh, I would add in the first season of True Detective. That's true. Which is, you know, we talked earlier about um, beg borrowing and stealing literary influences and then making them your own. I, and I, I'm fascinated um in the transformation of the King in Yellow slash Hastor over the last hundred years because we're watching the character evolve. And 10 years ago, the King in Yellow was just this guy in a tattered yellow cloth, maybe with tentacles underneath and maybe with a crown. And now... Since which drove no Joe up the fucking wall. Yep. <laughs> and now after True Detective, that figure has horns. Yeah, it, it, the in my view, okay, speaking personally, you know, wussy ending regardless. That's a very good season, and regardless of the fact that uh the writer of the series it's one thing to borrow ideas you should borrow ideas and make them your own but don't borrow dialogue and and, and twist it a little bit yeah. all of that said that is a very enjoyable season right of 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 weird fiction and you know i saw people online calling it lovecraftian and everything it's 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 not lovecraftian this is king and yellow mythos stuff right and and to me, it's interest. I'm interested in how the image of the King in Yellow has evolved because of that show. Hmm. Okay. You know, suddenly, with the addition of of antlers, the to, upcoming movie Antlers. Well, no. Oh, oh, oh! It's on my mind. They keep switching the date, and it looks fantastic. Right. Sorry, you that's know, an aside. You know, prior to. The, the uh, true detective, the King in Yellow, had a crown. Yeah. Post, post true detective, the King in Yellow has a crown of of uh, antlers. 
which, you know, is derived specifically from the show. Pete, I don't think this would be complete if we didn't point something out because there's going to be a lot of Googling from people who, who listen to this. There is Kevin Ross for Chaosium years ago created the yellow sign. By that, I mean he created kind of a visualization. Yes. It, it, it was like an eye with three, three curled tentacles around it. Yeah, and it, it's, it was very well done. You yeah, know. and um, why don't I let you continue it from here? Because most of the time, when you see this online, you see it upside down from the way it was intended, and you also see it typically borrowed without permission. Correct. Now, Kevin Ross, every time I've asked him if I can use it, he's given me his permission. You know, the but just to use it, the. the it's infuriating. Here's an here's an artist of a sort who created something very meaningful, right? And he should be credited for it. So, talk for like two minutes about this, Pete, because I don't think the conversation would or should be complete without it. Right, two minutes. Okay, so would it well, or if it ends up being eight, that's fine too. <laughs> no, I was going the other direction. So. So first, what we have to realize is that somewhere along the lines, King and Yellow gets um, conflated with Hastor, and you know, Derelith, you know, decides that Hastor is an air elemental, and he's going to write stories about him. And somewhere along the lines, he gets the two get conflated together. Now, I'm busy tracing that I, I think i've got it down to a piece of poetry by lynn carter um so that happens so the king in yellow becomes an avatar of um hastor in the cthulhu mythos right and then or Nearlathotep, right no just no 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 okay all right go on always hastor and then, you know, um, Chaosium starts doing stories and, you know, role-playing books. And there's this whole big thing going on because Peter Lavenda, when he did the Simon Necronomicon, put that great multi-pointed pentagram on the cover. And that's taken off and that's like, oh, that's the symbol of the Necronomicon now. It has been since the mid seventies, maybe early eighties. Um, once again, something that has been copied and used without permission mm-hmm. for, for probably fifty years now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you say, Kevin Ross designs this symbol to be used for for Hastor, and ultimately, it gets published upside down. <laughs> And, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been published upside down. But now, every, you know, when everybody says, oh, have you seen the yellow sign? That is the symbol people go to. Now, the funny thing is that that's not the first time that has happened. Um, many people thought that the symbol on the side of one of the early editions of 
the king in yellow was the, the, the yellow sign. And it was what that actually was, was the symbol of the publisher. Uh, F. F. Uh, Neely Tennyson. So, you know, people are desperate for this image and yeah. Ross finally got one and nailed it. And it's since taken off since then. And he did nail it. If you he haven't seen it. it. Yeah. But if you see it online, you're probably seeing it upside down. Yeah. Nine times out of 10. Yep. All right. What's your next question? All right. Before we move on, we, we were talking about books. I want to, and, I, and if you want to throw something out there too, Pete, that's fine. I want to say we've mentioned several books and obviously you can find more online, but I, I owe Pete for introducing me to Memento Mori by Brian Hauser. And I think that's a great, great place to start in terms of novels. Uh, Memento Mori by Brian Hauser. As far as movies, John Carpenter's Cigarette Burns, I think, is a great start. As far as I, the funny thing, I think those two pieces of, of, of work pair so well together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, television, we mentioned Dead Wax. And then short stories, I'll again say, I, I, I don't think anything like The King in Yellow Mythos is mentioned at all in, in Snuff Movie, that short story by Michael Menace. Okay. But it's the theme that we're talking about, that kind of theme of searching for the ultimate truth. Mm. So I'll I'll throw those things out there too. Anything you want to add before I move on to the next question? Yeah. So um in uh Raymond Chandler's book, The Simple Art of Murder, which is dominated by an essay. Um, with that title, there's a short story called The King in Yellow mm -hmm. by Raymond Chandler. And it's about a uh, big band leader who dresses in yellow pajamas. And his name is King Leopardi. And uh, the house detective at the hotel the guy's staying at says oh the king in yellow i read a book about that once <laughs> and it's so you know here it is raymond chandler one of the premier guys of writing mystery fiction who pretty much defined noir uh, in uh on its from its outset is giving a nod to Robert W. Chambers. I find that really, really cool. Here's a humorous aside that really doesn't anything, do anything except that it's a funny Joe story. So we're at, I think it was one of the HP Lovecraft film festivals. And, you know, among many other things, there's panels for those of you who haven't gone. So Joe and several other people, I don't remember who, we're on this panel talking about chambers and the king in yellow and the themes and everything. You know, I kind of like what Pete and I are talking about now, except that the 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 ultimate um, expert was there, Joe Pulver, and somebody in the audience. Said, oh, and they had they had whiskey at the panel table. You know, 
So here, this is the complete picture. And I'm trying to get some pictures for Lovecraft easing. So I'm not on the panel. Didn't want to be on the panel, you know, but wanted to get some pictures of Joe and everybody else. They're drinking, they're talking, and somebody from the audience, they take questions, and somebody from the audience is like, yeah, Mr. Pulver, um, what do you think of the story, uh, The Dark Star? And Joe's like, what? They're like, The Dark Star by Robert W. Chambers. And Joe's like, I've never heard of it. <laughs> Which is obviously, Chambers wrote so much romantic crap. You know, right. he that's what he was known for back in the day. Yeah. And the Dark Star has nothing to do with King and Yellow stuff. And it's pretty obscure. Right. So there's no blame on Joe for that, you know. But it was just such a funny moment. <laughs> yeah, so so that leads us to... so Because if Joe don't know, nobody knows. <laughs> so what a lot of people don't know is that... So Robert W. Chambers wrote this one collection of, of fantastic fiction. And then he wrote a few other pieces of, you know, what things that we um, might call weird fiction. But ultimately what he ends up doing is writing a romance novel almost every year. Yeah. To pay the bills because the King and Yellow stories did not pay the bills. I mean, we're, it, it, you know, it's like Pachelbel, Pete, Pachelbel's canon. He wrote so much, but this simple, captivating piece of music is what he's known for, revered for. People love this. And so, you know, I always describe Robert W. Chambers as the Danielle Steele of his time. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And, you know, in doing my research on him, I, you know, they made movies of a bunch of his stories. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Um, all silent and, you know, a few early talkies. But, yeah, they made a bunch of movies of, of his stories. But, you know, there's nothing great there. No, he was just paying the bills. You know, what he really wanted to do was to paint and go hunt and fish. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't... He was a man of leisure who who wrote so that he could do other things. Right. And, you know, one of the things I found out recently about him is that, you know, he, he had this, his townhouse in the city of New York. And every day he would get up and he would go to an office that he rented to write. And nobody really knew where this office was. He wouldn't tell anybody because he didn't want to be bothered. Right. No interruptions. Which is awesome, you know. Could you imagine how much work you could get done if if the phone and the internet weren't screaming you on you all the time? Well, yeah, you can turn it off. And by the way, writers, you don't have to write at Starbucks. Just letting well, you know, there's so. Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> all right, last. Qu- uh, no, oh no, I'm sorry. Uh, last two questions. Question four. You meaning me? Uh, you edit the inf- influential Lovecraft Easing. And your YouTube interviews with Modern Horror Greats, which is also available as a podcast, uh, are legendary. We're legendary, Pete. 
Uh, do you think that we are entering, entering a golden era of horror? And how do you think the horror fiction scene will evolve in the near future? All right, as to the first, thank you for the compliment. But I really believe that any successful business venture, collaborative art, which you might call the podcast, is successful because the guy in charge is smart enough to surround himself with people who knows more than he does on other subjects. So it would be a very boring podcast indeed if it was just me. So I have Pete to thank for that. Rick, Matt Carpenter, uh, Bridget, Melissa, and, you know, so on and so forth. Who did I miss? Um, ben Handelman's there sometimes. Ben Handelman, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, but everyone Joe Pulver for a long time. Huh? Joe Pulver for a long time. Joe Pulver for a very long time. Um, it looks like Sean Hamill's going to s- sneak in every once in a while. Yep, Sean Hamill. Um, I feel like I yeah. am forgetting somebody pretty basic, but uh, give me a second and I'll look and... Yeah, no, we've had a lot of people and they've come and gone. And you know, first, of all, I, you, and what you need to understand, everybody needs to understand that, that podcast, John Langan. John Langan, yes, podcast is a lot of work. Yeah, it is. You know, it's it looks like it's just two hours of getting together and chatting, but you know, there's a lot of preparation. My reading pile is forty books deep. Because you're on this podcast. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, my reading pile is 50 feet deep because I watch the podcast. <laughs> listen to it. Yeah. Uh, Rich Bunting is another one. He's actually a patron who's at the level, uh, $50 a level a month so that he can. Um, Bust our balls all the time. Yes, exactly. And, 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 and Rich, you know, he he's a smart guy. He adds a lot to it. So, um, yeah, I think I got everybody, um, but but it's great because they're there too. Now, it's just to the second part of this, I'll tell you, I hate questions like these, so I'm just gonna let Pete answer it. Do so you think we are entering a golden era of horror, and how do you think the horror fiction scene will evolve in the near future? My answer is, well, I think we're in a golden era of horror now. But Pete, your thoughts? So if we go back a hundred years to the pulp era, where there were dozens of cheap magazines being put out and publishing lots and lots of new writers, maybe 10% of them are remembered. Mm -hmm. And I think that we might be in a similar situation now. Um, we are entering a point where lots and lots of people are getting published, but a lot of that is going to end up being not important. Yeah. Even on this, on the, on the subject of Lovecraftian short fiction, yeah. know, when, when I really got into it 20 years ago, um, when there was a new collection or anthology that was Lovecraftian, you nabbed that. Right. Because 
I'm not going to use the word rare, but it didn't happen every day. And you, and you nabbed it, and you know there was going to be some good stuff in there. And if now there the, was... the problem today is not finding a Lovecraftian collection or anthology. The problem is finding the gold and ignoring the rest. Right. And and what you know, who is it? Um, Scott Jones and I have talked about this briefly. I spent. 30 or 40 years studying the mythos and collecting it before I took a turn at trying to write some. And, you know, there are people who have worked really, really hard to try and understand cosmic horror, weird fiction, the King in yellow and come up with something that they can work with in their heads and they want to write about. And then there are people who just, are, they see the pattern, but they don't understand it. And they see some buzzwords. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they throw these on a page and then you get 10 of those and then you got an anthology. Yeah. And it's okay to be blunt because you're not naming names. That's exactly right. what, what can happen. And uh, it's, it's really frustrating to, to pick up an anthology and read 10 or 20 stories that got it all wrong mm -hmm. and just obviously didn't know what they were, had, had not spent any time studying the fiction and what has gone before and what will come, you know, trying to understand the foundations of what you're working in. And what has been done by other people. Matthew Carpenter, as with everybody on the podcast, we give him a lot of shit. But here's the thing about Matthew Carpenter. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, if you were interested in an anthology, Lovecraftian anthology, looking on Amazon, if you were smart, you scroll down to the Matthew Carpenter review. And will, if that review said this is crap, you didn't buy it. I will tell you that even before I joined the Easy, Matthew Carpenter used to put together lists of Lovecraftian fiction. Yeah. And I used him as a resource. And then two things happened. One, Amazon did away with the lists. That was pretty stupid of them. But And two the ability to self-publish or to publish on the internet just caused the whole genre to explode. And, and that just, ability can be a boon to small press, yep. to the small press and the small, small press like Love Grant Easing Press, but it right. also can cause a lot of grief because anybody can just punch a button and get their stupid book out there that's a piece of crap. Yes, and here's the problem. So be be careful, you know. There are really, really good writers out there. Yeah. Who, I don't know why they decided to self-publish, but they did. And I've read their stuff, and it's really, really good. Well, Matthew Bartlett's a great example, isn't he? His yeah. first book, he self-published it. He was just sort of, I didn't know him at the time, but 
imagine his attitude was like, screw all this. I just want to get it out there. But the thing was, it was fantastic. Right. And now he's getting published by other people. Uh, he's becoming a known name in, in our circles. So yep. there, there's good and bad, you know. Right, there's, there's right. good and bad. Um, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So are we entering yeah. a golden age? So if we look at it as a point at, from the point of view that we are seeing work from a lot of writers who normally wouldn't get published because of they're not commercially viable for whatever reason. Let's face it, a lot of getting published in a non in a traditional way. It, it's not just talent; it's also luck. Well, yeah, and it's yeah, um, it absolutely is, and. Sometimes it's who you know, and yeah, that's all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, so there's that. There are openings now for minority writers, LGBTQ writers that didn't exist five years ago, let alone thirty years ago. And, and um, a small press. Speaking of golden era, a small press. Of course, they want to make money. I want to make money. Jeez, don't we all? But a small press can, Autumn Cthulhu is a good example, or other books that I've published. Autumn Cthulhu is an anthology, and I'm like, I love the idea of this. This is where it's coming from, from the heart. I love the idea of this. I want to see what writers I respect would do with this idea. And that's where many small press owner, owners come from. Right. You know, they want to get, something out there that traditionally the big four or five would not touch with uh, as yeah uh, as the guy in ghostbusters said uh with a 10 meter cattle prod so right so yeah oh. in that sense it is a golden era just right. be just be careful when you're mining for gold that you don't come across fool's gold and think it's the right well thing. there's a okay? and there's a lot of i would say that you know you know, for all do some sifting, the, you know, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be, you have to go by the wayside mm -hmm. and yeah. But the more you're part of this community, whether, you know, if you're an online looker and you're watching this show or other shows similar to it, or all of them, in conjunction, you're, part, you're becoming a part of this community. And the more you are becoming a part of the, this community, the more you'll learn, Hey, this is, Geez, Pete Rollick said this is really good. Matthew Carpenter said this is really good. Larry Barron said this was fantastic, and so on. Or right. even, I don't know if I want to take the show down this low, but even German Godzilla, as puppeted by John Langan, or possibly the other way around, said that this particular book was good. So, right. uh, so yeah. Recommendations. Uh, my biggest complaint from people watching the show, and I know it's not a... I say complaint in quotes is the same complaint that Pete just made. Every time I watch the show, my wallet hates me because my to be read list gets larger. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, the good thing about that, it's getting larger with quality stuff. That's the key. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, uh, I guess a bit of a humorous question, but maybe not. Uh, given the recent turn of events in the world, 
Do you think we're already in Carcosa? Sure feels like it to me. I have only the vaguest idea of what it would like to be in Carcosa, but I will tell you that I feel lately a renewed sense of hope. You know, when this question was asked two months ago, and it, I'm sorry it took me so long to get to all this, possibly it didn't look that way. I mean, we, we've got a vaccine on its way. We've got a new administration coming in. I don't want to get political at all, but, you know, there's there's been a couple changes even in the past few days that are very that feel very uplifting. So, any thoughts, I on, any I thoughts on that question, Pete? Um, so, you know, I did write a, a tribute story for Joe that should be out soon that dealt with, you know, parallels between this, the last four years and, and Carcosa. Mm -hmm. um, that'll be out hopefully soon. Is that um, the Nightmares in Yellow? Yes. Anthology. We should not. We shouldn't. We shouldn't leave without mentioning more about right. that. I think it's two volumes now, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be two volumes. Yeah. Um, uh, edited by Dwayne Pesic. Uh, Pesic, yes. Um, yep. So yeah, I, I I understand where this question comes from. I also posed this question to Thomas Legati a few months ago, maybe even a year ago. You know. He wrote this great story called The Last Piece of the Harlequin about, you know, clowns and darkness and every, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the world is, you know, becoming a dark joke. Mm -hmm. And one of the great images of that is Insane Clown Posse. And you know, it's not something I understand or you agree about with. the clown thing from two years ago, yeah, yeah, that was fascinating. You know, this whole idea that you know, that there's a, a, a subculture in the United States of people who dress up like demented clowns and go to concerts or stand on a street corner, isolated road yeah. next to an intersection or yeah. whatever that's fucking creepy as hell but right yeah but you know what this is this is the comedian sitting on the edge of the bed crying because he saw the truth and he realizes the world's a joke yep this is one expression of that the world the universe is indeed comic but the joke is on mankind HP yes yeah yeah, yeah no i i that's just speaking of Thomas Ligotti. Here's some news, Pete, that I even had a, not even had a chance to share with you yet. Uh, I get emails like this. Uh, apparently, there is now a short film titled "In a Foreign Town." Thomas Ligotti's Dark World comes to the digital screen. Nice. "In a Foreign Town" takes viewers to a surreal place that blurs old memories with something far sinister. The short, which serves as proof of concept for a three-part limited series and active development, is the first major adaptation of Thomas Ligotti's influential work. So uh, I'm trying to get their permission. to. I, th I think I'm allowed to share the movie with anybody, but I want to make sure first. But I'll send it to you, though. All right. Uh, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I just thought I'd throw that out there since you mentioned Ligotti. Um, 
I I think that's all about all we had, except uh, it, yeah, look out for Nightmares in Yellow coming. I'm not sure when, but I think in the next few months, uh, there's going to be a lot of King in Yellow. I'm assuming and Joe Pulver Joe tribute stories in that. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's a really good thing. And I applaud Dwayne for doing this. I've got yeah. something in there. Pete's got something in there. Many, many writers have something in there because that's the way they felt about Joe. So, you know, they wanted to be there. So, all right. Did I miss anything, Pete? I don't think I did. No, I think that's everything. All right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Pete, thanks for doing this with me. I think it's a lot, oh. a lot better than if I would have just done it by myself, having a conversation. So, yeah. I ultimately, I think you're. I mean, what do you want to do? A TED talk about Joe? No, you want to have a conversation about Joe. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that was my thought. So, uh, thanks to the patrons who are watching live and later. And a special thanks to the Indian Noir podcast. Thank you for um, reaching out and asking me these questions. And thank you for putting up with me being slow, uh, being so busy, and, and, and so forth. And, um, and yeah, uh, please share with me your, your, your podcast listeners' reaction, and I, and I hope they enjoy it. So, again, thanks, Pete. And, uh, if you uh, don't know about the Lovecraft Easing podcast, go to YouTube and just type in Lovecraft Easing. That's Lovecraft. And the next word is E Z I N E. Or you can just go to Google if you'd rather just listen on the go. Just go to Google and type in Lovecraft Easing podcast and you'll find it. It's on iTunes, You're Spotify, on Spotify. and so forth. Sorry? You're on Spotify now, right? Yeah, I'm on Spotify now too. So, yeah. So, all right. Thanks, Pete. And good night, everyone. And thanks for listening.